Welcome to Pioneering Minds. My name is Adam Norris, and each week I'll be sitting down at Macquarie University with a special guest to discuss some of the most interesting, innovative, and improbable aspects of science, art, life, the universe, and everything. Recently, James Cameron, director of films such as Avatar, Terminator 2, and Titanic, spoke about the notion of Avengers fatigue, of audiences tiring of superhero fare, and that there are scores of other stories out there waiting to be told. But what brought audiences to these films in the first place? Why is the Marvel Cinematic Universe flourishing while DC's extended universe more miss than hit? Are these multi-film epics the way of the future, or are audiences tiring of stories that effectively never end? We talk with cinema expert Dr. Anthony Lambert, ahead of the latest Marvel blockbuster, Avengers Infinity War, about superheroes and diversity on the silver screen. Well, we're here today with Dr. Anthony Lambert, going to be talking all things cinema. So thank you, Doctor, for taking the time to talk to us in the first place. You're welcome. No worries. We're chatting to coincide with the release of this new Avengers Infinity War movie, but we'll be talking about superhero cinema and crossover films and audience trends and and all such things but i thought before we really began we had to get one thing clear okay who is your favorite superhero and why favorite superhero well these days it has to be wonder woman of course Mm -hmm. not simply just because of the accessories i'm the (laughs) child of the late 60s early 70s so i was a big fan of a lot of the cartoons and the american tv programs that were around at the time Superman, Wonder Woman, Spider-Man, um, they were always my favourites. So no matter how many variations come and how many kind of more obscure characters step forward and become more popular, I'm still fairly traditional. Even Aquaman, I suppose, and there is one coming out soon, which mm. I'm kind of excited about. But, I mean, that said, am I a massive superhero fan? Probably not, but do I pay attention to them? Absolutely, because I think you'd be silly not to, particularly mm. in my job. Yeah, I think it's interesting that there are all of these odd superheroes who are coming out of the woodwork now that a lot of us may never have heard of. But I always liked with Wonder Woman especially that mm. one of her powers wouldn't be the right expression, but one of her her items is this lasso of truth and that yes. a, a superpower is compelling people to be truthful. I yes. always thought that was quite a nice... There's a moral in there somewhere. There is, I think, because the rope goes around you and it pulls you tight and it squeezes the truth out of you, you mm. know. So you're caught in that kind of, you know, Ariadne's web where you've got to... Hmm surrender to the power <laughs> and the pressure i've always been a, a batman fan myself that was, was my yeah the same actually i should have mentioned batman as well i spent a lot of afternoons after school watching batman i, I kind of missed the like the adam west uh television days i was very much a tim burton michael keaton batman oh, really? fan. that was that was oh, my no, my upbringing i was all about batman and batman Returns. it was much darker i mean i think in the beginning when the franchise was kind of properly introduced into cinema in the you know the kind of 90s versions of they were interesting and they were kind of humorous and kind of funny but they did get progressively darker i think over the next two decades after that mm. um, which is kind of interesting and apparently it's more true to the original comics but i can't really speak to that but for me it was always about the tights and the, and the camp kind of animated <laughs> intertitles and the kapow and the bam and you know to the batmobile Yes, <laughs> and all those kind of you know the dodgy sets and the the spandex, I, I just loved all that. I mean that was very much associated with my after school activity. I do have a soft spot for the bams and the biffs and yeah, the it's I, grand. I really loved all that, you know. Um, so I think it kind of lost a bit of the I don't, don't want to say camp, but certainly more festive kind of um, low budget, mm. low res 
excitement around. I remember reading somewhere once, and I wish I could remember the source, but it was talking of the evolution of horror films and how, in broad strokes, we can look at certain decades and the horror films that were produced then as representative of social fears. Godzilla and Radiation, body horror and Cronenberg films, uh, fear of HIV and communicable diseases. I'm not sure what it says when we hit the the 2000s and it's just all this kind of hostel and, and torture porn as it was called you mentioned how comic books as well or superhero cinema and superhero television got darker as mm. the decades progressed is it too much to think that well this is also a reflection of social anxieties Yes, I mean, you could make the same argument about the shift in Westerns in the 1970s where we got these kind of cowboys that were no longer Roy Rogers kind of style cowboys but really dark kind of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Mm. You know, the the kind of um, complicated, flawed, dark heroes of a range of different stories. And I think particularly the Batman as an example, we see a blurring of the lines between the hero and the villain so there becomes a complicated mm. characterization of what that means. And I think we're dealing with contexts like shifting global powers, terrorism, um, and, and a shifting relationship to commercialism. If we, as I kind of just suggested before, I think the 60s and 70s stuff doesn't really cut it anymore. The kind of camp half an hour cheap sets stuff wasn't really working, so it wasn't servicing our shift in visuality, if you like, mm. our, our need for grander, more spectacle, more spectacular, more technologically innovative versions of things so two things are happening a kind of darker version of humanity and heroism but also an increase in technical capabilities so both of those things collide to produce interesting i think and more complex visions of what the the hero myth is Mm. in comic book character stories i know with the justice league movie that came out last year i believe and again, including Batman as mm. part of this ensemble, mm. it was something like a $300 million budget trying to tie in all of these different, and Wonder Woman as well, yes. uh, superheroes. And it rather underperformed and was rather critically panned. And now there's, I know there's more Batman standalone films are going to be coming out with or without Ben Affleck <laughs> and his, his, yeah. his scowl. But then we also see the success of something like Wonder Woman. I wonder, do you think we're going to be seeing a point where we hit superhero saturation it's just too much well isn't that the problem with the justice league film i think i went to see wonder woman and just before the movie started was an ad for the justice league and in my head i was going isn't that the woman in wonder woman Mm. i was a bit confused and then i was thinking well where does this play in relation to the film that i'm about to watch and and i think for most people because it didn't follow that singular kind of interesting journey of one particular character it didn't perform as well as it should have as a film mm. so I think that that transferred itself into the commercial aspect as well if a film I think like the Avengers stuff that you mentioned before is already premised on a group of or a team of superheroes in a way and we're not really used to a lot of those heroes Iron Man I guess being an exception and um, Spider-Man I suppose as well but we're not, you know, we're used to seeing them together, and that works as a franchise, and that develops as a franchise. I think it's a little bit different to kind of saying, "Here's Wonder Woman. Now she's part of this group." I think it was too much too soon. Mm. I actually really believe that. Um, but I do think there's a place for groups of superheroes together, and we've seen that with the Avengers, and we've seen it previously. I think with the Justice League and cartoon version on television in the in the 70s and 80s as well. Do you think there's, uh, with half an eye, cast back to? the television series serials that we used to see and today where 
on the one hand, you have people bemoaning, oh, there's just all of these superhero movies. There's all of these remakes. There's endless Star Wars spin-offs now. Jurassic Park is back again. And yet keep going to see these films in droves do you think there's just an embarrassment for nostalgia we decry it on one hand and yet we fork over the money for the ticket with the other yeah look is there an embarrassment for nostalgia or is there a compulsion for heroism and seriality i don't know Mm. I, i feel like it's probably more the latter to be honest i'm thinking of the supergirl program that's on television at the moment which another series is just about to come out all the incarnations of the superman story told from different perspectives that we see in a range of contemporary tv texts you know and i would describe them as fairly big budget texts i would describe them as very well made and incredibly popular so whether the audience for those is actually the same audience that was watching things in the 70s or 80s i'm not entirely sure Mm. i do think that's actually a new audience that consumes event television in particular ways And again, it speaks to the development of the media as much as it does the reincarnation of the heroes too. Mm. Um, Hero stories are always going to be popular in one way or another, and certainly in what form. People do, you know, go to the visual. They go to television. They go to film for that seriality. I mean, if you look at the 1950s in Australia and certainly in Hollywood, the ongoing series of films to do with stories, but mostly adventure stories to do with heroes, you'd go back every week. I mean, in Australia, we didn't have a lot of local content being produced between the 1940s and the 1960s. So we looked to these American kinds of serial programs. And I know my father used to talk about going to the cinema each week to see the next instalment of a different Mm. story or a different hero story. So we need the instalments. I mean, we binge watch a lot of series these days as well. But here we go, you know, we get a franchise for that reason. Franchises are obviously incredibly expansive and across a whole range of different types of media. But we see in filmmaking, the successful ones are going to get milked for all you can, from Star Wars to the Alien films to now the Avengers. We're going to see a whole range of different ones. And usually the bigger the better. Mm. You know, usually as long as they continue a story of some sort. and Which is why I think Star Wars has been incredibly popular and it sustains itself. While we suddenly had to look at these, these three films that we loved so much as the later episodes you know it's kind of interesting so we're filling in gaps we're going backward and forward we're looking at the how does the narrative work what happened and now there's a Han Solo film coming out of course when he was younger as well so we're going back in time because we saw him die in the last Star Wars film Mm. you know so it's kind of interesting how this works as long as we can tap into the narrative and I'm not entirely sure that you need to have seen one film to enjoy the other films you might watch one and then go back and watch the others So these things kind of stand alone, but they also stand together. Lord of the Rings, for example, The Hobbit. I have wondered that if, because I've been watching these Marvel films as they've come out, if it is necessary to have watched them more or less sequentially just to appreciate what's happening. The purists would argue that. I'm certainly... (laughs) I mean, I I do have a PhD student who is very focused on those particular texts, and I think those types of people who who are very closely aligned with those texts and are very interested in the way that they work would want to make sure that people have watched one then watch the other and watch the other or Mm. at least read even the books or the comics that those things are based on some people take it all very seriously to talk more of avengers and franchising and and audience trends more i think the whole marvel cinematic universe i think is one of the most interesting trends to come along in a while now disney bought marvel back in 2009 and I think mm. Iron Man was 2008 which is really what started all yeah, of this. Yeah, Iron Man was a game changer wasn't it? Really? That was, yeah, yeah. I think it, I don't think they knew exactly what they had but no. geez, it, it's, it really got something started but it made me think back to when, not that I was alive at the time, but when Jaws was released mm. and a lot of people saying, 
just how important that was in that it really helped her to usher in the summer blockbuster and it just changed the way that we engage with movies. Can we say that this Marvel Cinematic Universe, this notion of pulling in all of these different stories and connecting them to one grand narrative, has that had a similar impact? I think Jaws and the Marvel Universe are very different beasts, but are they blockbusters? Absolutely. Do they run in that same way? Do they attract audiences because of the spectacle? Because of what I would call event cinema? Absolutely. They're big budget, they're shiny, they're bold. They're going to engage you in ways. There's a politics of affect at work in these things that just draws you in so that you're on the ride, you know? You buy your ticket, you get on the ride, you have the thrills and spills and you come out the other end. But that's where I kind of think that they're very different. I think Jaws, in a sense, is also about some of those social fears that we talked about before that were going on at the time in the late 1970s. Um, and I think we kind of got sick of Jaws by the time it was like Jaws 105 3D plus blah, blah, blah. You know? I only found out recently Sir Michael Caine was in one of the Jaws yeah. films. I had no idea. I did see that the third one in 3D. No. <laughs> um, and I was alive when the first one came out and I did see it. So, Do you recall the, the, um, the great social impact it had? Because you look back at it now and you see that it's kind of like you hear stories of the well, exorcist. I was 10, so I mean, I'm not sure if I, I recall the absolute social impact, but I do the popularity of it, absolutely. I was smuggled in under a blanket into the drive-in in country Victoria at the time <laughs> to watch it. So, um, but it was like the biggest thing happening in the world at the time you know up there with the moon landing perhaps I'm joking but maybe um but it was spectacular you know it was huge and those teeth were coming at you you know and and the whole idea of the shark attack and the animal attack was reborn really all Mm. those kind of camp 1950s films of larger than life monsters eating up people was somehow much more realistic even though of course it was you know shot beautifully some Mm. of those those water shots really changed the way that we actually shoot the water and that we shoot adventure cinema and the outback and animals in particular in horror films especially so that impact i think that roller coaster definitely started there you know we then saw the alien films the terminator films a whole range of franchised big budget scientific but also horror kind of films very interesting the way that they wormed through the 90s and into the early 2000s as well. I think what's happening here, and I think you're probably right, this is where your nostalgia stuff comes in, because cleverly the Marvel comics and the DC stuff has reached back into the past to, to think, OK, well, what's the centre of this hero myth? What's the centre of this particular type of adventure? And how can we bring it to an audience in the contemporary context? How can we make it bigger, smarter, shinier, more colourful, but more engrossing as well? And I think they do do those things. I think the best hmm. of those films offer us everything that we want in a film. I mean, this need for spectacle that we have is only getting bigger. I think event television happening at the moment, short serial, high-end premium content TV we see in short bursts, the streaming that we see through a lot of on-demand television services, on-demand media services now, the 4K stuff going on. I mean, this era that we're in now where you can literally watch everything you know, that you want in one go or at any time, day or night, or go to the cinema. It needs to be bigger. To get people out of their houses and to go into a cinema and watch a film these days, it needs to, I think, mm. be bigger and more important and more attractive in a whole range of ways. It has to just tap into a good story, but it also has to absolutely use the best of the available technology now. Even animated films, like a Coco, I mean, what a great mm. film, you know? But yeah. It's interesting because it's really just the same film remade from every other animated film that we've seen in the last 20 years, if you like. Very similar stories, very similar characters, but beautifully produced and manifested and just shown to us in ways that tap into the emotions and take you on the ride. That idea of event cinema, I think, is very Mm. interesting and how it does speak to technological advancement and audience sophistication. 
With these Marvel films, we're in the middle of phase three, yeah. as they're calling it now. I think phase one ended with the first Avengers movie. Phase two ended with Ant-Man. And this phase three isn't going to be until the end of 2019 when this fourth Avengers film comes out. I was reading that the Marvel studio head, Kevin Feige, has said that by the time these 22 films are done, there's going to be a sense of completion. And yes, there'll be a climax and things will be kind of tied off. But I'm positive there will be a phase four and there's still going to be things going on. Are audiences being accustomed to consuming a story, a product that never ends? I actually think they are. I actually do. I totally agree with that. That's one thing I absolutely believe in. I think they're always going to tap into the narrative and whether it's the same narrative or whether it's a similar narrative produced through different characters and another story. We might have the end of the fourth period, but it's never going to stop. The spectacle will continue. It may be reconstituted in certain ways. They may dream up a new universe or there may be someone that comes from the old universe and moves to another universe and a whole series of characters emerge. But we're still going to need the heroes. We're still going to need this kind of Manishian good-bad dichotomy working. And I think even more so now, we're looking to these films for the kinds of political and social reflections, messages, you know, interactions, import that they have. I mean, Black Panther is an example recently, I think, was, wow, black people being superheroes, how amazing, you know, mm. very interesting stuff. And then Wonder Woman became Breaking all something kinds of else. Records. Within the, the Me Too movement, the hashtag Me Too movement, we saw Wonder Woman being screened on International Women's Day, being resurrected again for this year. So it's kind of interesting how we're making films mean something or we're making them to mean something. Um, A Wrinkle in Time, as an example as well, we saw Oprah and Reese Witherspoon travelling the globe, telling everyone it was very important because it was a a young female-centred adventure story. Mm. And we'll probably see more of that stuff as well. Uh, If you look at TV, of course, the big budget stuff is often very women-centred. You know, Big Little Lies, Handmaid's Tale, Olive Kitteridge. This stuff is just very well made and often produced by, directed by, and starring very high-profile women. So we're seeing a real interesting shift, I think, both on the screen in terms of superpowers and their resonance politically, but also on the TV screen as well. Mm. Yeah, talking to that political power of cinema, because the fact that cinema is political, I mean, we can go back to Lenny Riefenstahl and the the Nazi propaganda films, up to contemporary instances which aren't quite as bleak as that, but as you say, something like Black Panther, or the fact that... Scarlett Johansson's Black Widow character is finally getting her own film 10 years after she first appeared. Are we seeing reflections of social trends? Are they responding to us? Is it more a a symbiosis? Well, it's funny because you talked about, you know, the fourth series or the fourth area of the, the universe finishing in those films. Those films may resonate with what's going on at the time. Those films take a while to make. So if we look at something like A Wrinkle in Time, they can say, yes, this is a a good film to come out within the context of the post-Weinstein Me Too movement. But it was, you know, already filmed probably two years ago, you know, Mm. and the editing and post-production was probably done in the last 18 months, you know. So it's interesting, probably around the same time or before a lot of these things that we're talking about now. The Black Panther stuff probably, I think, probably came in um, maybe around or just after that Oscars So White campaign happening as well. So Mm. that's kind of interesting. So it can be one and it can be the other. So I guess it's a little from column A and a little from column B, as Grandpa Simpson would say. (laughs) Um, But I think that they're always going to be read through the lens of the prevailing cultural scripts. I think that's what's really important. So whether the films are made with a political intention in mind or not is perhaps not as important as what they mean to the people that are seeing them. 
So if there is a dominant public conversation about sexism, about marginality, about diversity, which there seems to be a lot of at the moment, we're always going to read things through those lenses, I think. What do you think of story arcs when it comes to these... Well, let's just stay focused on the Avengers films. Are we seeing them for spectacle and to see traditionally marginalised groups like Mm. African-Americans suddenly have pride of place? Or is there legitimately interesting content there? Are uh, Are there stories which are making us think and question things? Well, that's what's interesting, I think, about the current crop of superhero films, you know, and the Marvel films in particular. You know, if we go back to the 80s when there was some, you know, some really interesting comic-based stuff becoming live action, people were saying, oh, they're kids' films, or they're for kids, they're for kids. Or there was discussion about, oh, they're kids' films, but they've got this adult stuff, wink, wink, like the Superman mm. movies, you know, in Superman and Lois Lane with Christopher Reeves and Margot Kidder. Margot yeah. Kidder? Yeah. I mean, those films were interesting because Superman and, and Lois Lane were in bed in one scene. You know, mm. I mean, how outrageous. You know, but it was still a kid's movie. It was still, you know, wasn't rated like rated M or anything or rated R or anything. Mm. So, you know, that's shifted, I think, a little bit more now. I mean, the ratings haven't changed, but of course, they're not just directed at children. They're directed at people with a cultural capital or a literacy of these universes, of the characters, of the way in which a lot of these films work. In particular, they'd already know things about Spider-Man and, and Iron Man and Ant-Man, for example. So they already have a kind of a lingo, a currency, an idea. And, and because, as you said before, they're, they're making like millions and millions and millions of dollars and they're globally successful, that's going to perpetuate itself. So even people that don't know about these things are going to learn fairly quickly what they mean and then be prepared for the next film. Mm. You know, So these films don't actually exist in isolation. They really are events comprised of a series of other events. So I think it's interesting because it's about where the light shines. I think it's not really about a kind of continuum chronologically. It's actually about, well, okay, we're going to shine on this side of the story now or we're going to look at that side of the story now mm. or we're going to look at this side of the story. It's like a lot of texts about The Wizard of Oz we see stuff from the perspective of the witches now or from the perspective of the, the scarecrow or from a munchkin, you know. We're not just looking at the traditional story of Dorothy goes to meet the wizard and goes home. We're looking at all these kind of miniature kind of stories, all these tangents that are, are there. That's the beauty, I think, of the kind of postmodern context mm. in which media is being produced. We're not just looking to the traditional story. We're looking to the shadows. We're looking to the relatives of the characters. We're looking to smaller characters and seeing how they respond. The Wolverine trajectory from the X-Men films to the Logan film, I think is a very interesting one, for example. Mm. I mean, the first X-Men film absolutely, for me, is emblematic of the way social concerns can be lived out through the high-budget franchise film. You know, I mean, that film was very interesting within the context of the same-sex marriage debate in America at the time, within the context around, um, you know, essentially racist um, happenings in America at the time, the post-LA riots, all of those types of things, police shootings, so on and so forth. I mean, marginalisation was really the theme of that film. These people were marginalised because of their differences, but their differences were proven to be incredibly powerful, particularly once combined. So there are a lot of really interesting stories there. And if you look at the way the council and the political speeches in that first film work, they could almost be out of the news. They could Mm. almost be out of political campaigns or people who are agitating towards political change. It just put me in mind of something outside of cinema, going back to the stage and Tom Stoppard's with Mm. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead where we have two lesser characters plucked from a much more significant, well, significant, a much more famous text and and character, which on the one hand is grand, and you can see that there are these larger stories there where there are 
overlooked aspects or things that we can keep drawing out from them. Is that something that we should celebrate and encourage or is it taking away from the promotion and creation of fresh content? Wow, I don't think it's taking away from the promotion of fresh content. I think it's absolutely promoting fresh content. I mean, I don't know whether or not Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead again. It's going to be like a big box office chain of things. <laughs> but Maleficent, I think, is a good example of yeah, that, yes. the Angelina Jolie film, um, you know, which is the retelling of the Sleeping Beauty story. Um, it wasn't really about Sleeping Beauty at all. It was about ha- what had happened to her and how she'd been abused and how she'd lost her wings and all these other really interesting aspects of the story. So I think there are other stories to be told within these stories and that that's what's going to keep these things going and that's what does keep them going. Otherwise, we sh- we'll be watching the same film. Mm. I mean, why are we getting these different incarnations of Superman, for example? I mean, the most recent one on TV is I th- called Krypton, hmm. you know, which is set completely on the planet Krypton. You know, so so that's kind of interesting as well. We get a, another take on this story again. I think the other interesting thing is that we see a lot of these characters in contemporary, if not futuristic times, whereas in the 60s and 70s, Superman, for example, was within the time. You know, mm. It was set within that time. Batman also was set within that time. So whilst he might have had these amazing gadgets, couldn't possibly have been of invention at the time, he was living within the confines and the context of the time in which it was produced and the time in which people were watching. Mm. Whereas these other ones now, time is less of an issue, I think, in a sense. We don't demand the realism of time that we did of those 60s and 70s versions of these stories. Mm. So I guess we can play with time. I mean, look at Wonder Woman as well. That's set historically as well. I mean, the Wonder Woman that we saw in the Linda Carter version was very much a sexy 70s kind of, you know, early 80s kind of camp again mm. look at this story but I think the historical aspects in in the um, Gal Gadot story is very interesting to see the way that we've kind of legitimised it by placing it in a historical context as well That's an interesting yeah. point that a sense of history uh, and yeah. real world chronology yeah. adds legitimacy somehow Of course, absolutely and it's kind of interesting because I have been talking about this idea of, of spectacle and big visual spectacles with my students over the last few weeks um, and we were tracing the history of colour, the use of colour in the cinema and the use of different technological effects in the cinema and how they've worked to service a range of different cultural needs at the time. But interestingly enough, in the early history of cinema, colour was seen as the the antithesis of what you wanted because it delegitimised the cinema. Mm. So early, early filmmakers, particularly the Russian formalists, wanted to use black and white because it was their art, you know. Um, it was born of the black and white art and the way that they edited in black and white. You know, Man with a Movie Camera and all of those films, for example. But then, of course, as we saw the history and the big Ben-Hur type epics start to take over and, of course, the development of colour technology, we thought, OK, the epic needs to be colourful. Right? The spectacular needs to be colourful. So as we got scientific, you know, science fiction films developed, they became more colourful. And then we saw all those funny kind of horror movies from the mid-century colour, colour, colour. So the development of colour and visual technologies has always been aligned with the genre of the superhero, the horror story, the larger-than-life disaster story. Mm. You know, that seems to me to be where the big technological changes happen. We are almost out of time, Dr Lambert, but before we do leave, I did want to touch on your own research focuses. Mm. And as I understand it, you've been looking at at film in, I believe, the Howard Prime Ministership of cinema and the relationship with 
social policy, mm. which I'm sure is going to be, is could be in another conversation to itself. Uh, but could you could you just uh, dip into it for sure, now? Sure, definitely. Look, I, I haven't been doing a lot of it these days, but I've been more centering on the idea of spectacle and spectacle in the Australian context. But I think for me, my work in the Howard era was pretty much, and it still is, I guess, around images of what being Australian meant and how Australian space was constructed and how those things related to, as I said before, the particular cultural scripts of the time, the mm. larger conversations. And these conversations haven't really changed that much, but during the Howard era, for me, the conversations around immigration and the environment, which are still obviously big ones, but were particularly prevalent in the cinema that we produced in Australia at the time. So that was something that I really wanted to mark in my own research. There were a lot of films like Unfinished Sky, a lot of films about refugees, a lot of films about the way our relationship to the environment. And they seem to have stories about transformation and change, stories about refugees, stories about the policing of Australian space, all of those things, I think, were either a response to, an endorsement of, or a reimagining of the kinds of policies that were in place at the time. I mean, it was a, a very interesting time, but also, I think, a very scary time for a lot of people. Whilst John Howard might be the elder statesman of the Liberal Party and, of course, respected as you know a long-serving Prime Minister, at the same time, I think a lot of people have some residual feelings about the ways in which marginalised peoples were treated and the ways in which the relationship to the environment was imagined in government policy. So, mm. Are there new focuses or are we seeing similar fears or, and, and aspirations? Sure. Well, I'm surprised there hasn't been more same-sex marriage stuff, to be honest with you, given that mm. it absolutely dominated the cultural conversation for mm. a good two years. We, we got the occasional documentary like Gaby Baby or we got Holding the Man. And, of course, you know, a lot of stuff on the ABC and SBS, you know, a lot of um, either documentaries or telemovies about certain episodes in so-called queer history but we didn't really see the transformation of Australian soap operas for example or the transformation of you know mm. everyday characters on TV in the UK for example you have a lot of openly gay chat show hosts you know we don't seem to have the same thing here and, and I don't know that the visibility thing we've really kind of understood or started to work with I think we're still obsessed with the environment I think we're absolutely obsessed with indigenous non-indigenous relations and and the we kind of see an overpopulation of Indigenous people in Australian cinema and to a lesser extent Australian TV because they're constantly positioned in a way that, that we're asked to ask questions about our relationship to land, environment, identity and those things. Mm. Um, I think at the moment probably what we're going to see a lot more of and what we do seem to be seeing more of is debates around energy and resources. Mm. And, and the environment generally, but not in the same kind of Australia is a scary place environment that we saw in like Picnic Hanging Rock, which is also been re-envisaged, re I should say, for Foxtel, um, which will be on in May. So there's a story in there, of course, about the dark trappings mm. of Australian space compared to our colonial history and the kind of debate between the two. And the film Razorback, lest we forget. Absolutely. For, so that doesn't disappear into the ether. I feel no. more people need to be aware. I think it won't. And Howling 3, of course. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Where the woman's doing the ballet on the opera house stage and turns into a werewolf <laughs> while she's doing a pirouette. You've got to love that. I haven't seen Howling, Howling 3 in a long time. abound in that one. Indeed. Well, we are out of time, but thank you for your insights. Hopefully we'll, we'll talk to you again down the track uh, so. and get some, some more insights. But until then, thank you for your time. Thank you. 